All right, everyone, if you haven't already, uh, go ahead and go to the back table and get your uh, journal. We've been on this series called Bold Exploration, and we each have these little journals that we've been taking notes in, just kind of tracking the progress. There are also, in one of the baskets, um, unmarked journals. If you don't have one yet, feel free to go back there, get one, get a pen. Um, another brief little announcement before we jump into this. Um, our Peru team just got back uh, on Tuesday. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, Steph was on the trip. Is there anybody else here that was on that team? There were several of them that were here this morning. Oh, Jason, you're right there. Good to see you. Um, so uh, later on in this month, uh, they're going to be sharing a lot more about what the Lord did down there. Uh, but it's, to me, as a, we were reflecting this week, and I got to talk very briefly with Logan and Bethany, who led that team, it's such a beautiful example of the thing that we're talking about, this idea of bold exploration, that when we know who we're called to be, when we know what it is that God has done on our behalf, how he's transforming us, it gives us this permission to boldly explore the world that God has given us, uh, and to really put ourselves out there. How many of you, uh, from day to day, aren't exactly the most confident in your identity in Christ? Does anybody care to admit to that? I'll go first. Okay, great. Um, it means nothing for us to declare our identity in Christ and keep it within these walls. It doesn't mean a thing. I mean, we can, you know, the, my, one of my favorite writers, David Foster Wallace, used this phrase, the banal platitudes. These little phrases that we just offer to one another to make ourselves feel better, to make other people feel better. But if it doesn't mean anything once we go past the walls, what's the point? And I think this team uh, going down to Peru, putting themselves in unknown situations, uh, being open and available to see what the, the Lord might want to say, what he might want to do, that's when our identities in Christ actually matter. That's when these things really mean something. And I just, I just want to commend you guys for being willing to say yes to wherever the Lord might take you. And so we're in this bigger journey um, in this series of bold exploration, of really asking that question. Okay, we have this identity in Christ. We are the image of God. Um, we carry the reflection of who he is into the world with us. How are we equipped to explore the world that God has given us and in doing so to bring his good news into places of brokenness? And as I was um, praying about this several weeks ago, um, I, really, I was really quite surprised by what I felt like the Lord was uh, inviting us to examine tonight, and it's this. It's holiness that gives us confidence for bold exploration. Holiness gives us confidence for bold exploration. Now, we all have varying degrees of awareness of, first of all, what holiness means, but for many of us, holiness has perhaps taken on a negative connotation because we grew up in church environments or perhaps we were outside the church at one point looking in and holiness was perceived as some sort of behavior modification. That it was about a list of rules and do's and don'ts and, and you know, you, you're not allowed to, to do this thing, you're not allowed to do that thing. And then girls, they have to get down on their knees and make sure that their skirts are like a certain, and that's what holiness is. And we say, oh, I, I don't want anything about that. And, and we kind of run to the other side of this false paradigm we have between holiness and freedom. And what I want us to really do tonight is to rescue the idea of holiness to really see it for what it, God really de determines that it is. And in doing so, that we recognize it's our holiness, it's this beautiful gift that God has given us that enables us to boldly explore. And so let's pray, and we're gonna jump right into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, as the song that we just sang says, you're, you're, you're here with us, and you're for us, you're not against us. And Lord, if there's anything within ourselves that 
still finds that too good to be true. Uh, if we have images of you that don't line up with the image that we see in Jesus Christ, we offer those things to you because they're holding us back from in, um, embracing you as you truly are. Yeah, Lord, we thank you that we're able to come into this place with, with everything we know about you and everything we have yet to know. And you still choose to meet us in that. That you want to give us an encounter that leads to transformation. And so, Lord, we, we dedicate every part of this evening to you. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, as many of you know, uh, originally I'm from Northern Ireland, and I want to tell you a little bit of, of a story. In 1988 was our family's very first vacation here to the United States. We went to Maryland, and I, I'm, I'm giving you this all through the lens of a four-year-old. I was actually the second smallest in my class until about the eighth grade, and I grew a foot which was a really uncomfortable time in my life, and we won't tell as many stories from then, but here I am, this little three foot seven, four-year-old, and I, this is the first time I've ever been out of my own country, and you know, I'm exploring, and I've seen uh, all these American television shows and movies, and I'm just excited to see it, and, and for some reason, again, in my four-year-old memory, there is this Wild West theme park in Maryland. I don't know why. This was this was not exactly the, uh, the, the, the bold exploration that we were expecting there. But, so we went to this theme park, and I was just loving it. And there's like cowboy hats and all of this, you know, these things that have to do with the Old West. And there was this train that we got on, and someone handed me this box of treasure that I was supposed to guard with my life. And then, then the, the train got held up by some bad guys, and they came looking for that treasure, and they came right to me, and I just handed it right over because I'm like, I'm not from here. This is not worth me getting in trouble. I know my place. And so anyway, we had, a, we had a wonderful trip, and it actually became the impetus. My parents always wanted to be missionaries. They thought we'd go to Africa or something, and then the Lord really spoke to them and invited them to come here to this country. Um, but we're, we're in the airport. We're in Baltimore Airport, and we're getting ready to leave. Now, you've got to remember, this is pre-9-11. How many of you remember before September 11, 2001? Most of you have varying degrees of memory. This is in 1988. So very different experience when you're in an airport. It's usually just some large guy going, you got any drugs? No? Okay, just get on the airplane. It's fine. So here we are. We're coming up. I'm, I'm coming up to the conveyor belt. We're going through security. I put my little backpack on the thing, and it's rolling through. And again, in my four-year-old memory, this is what happened. All these alarms and sirens started going off, and these gigantic seven-foot men dressed head to toe in black came rushing out of every corner and crevice of the Baltimore airport to, to, to capture me and to put me in prison, and I was never, ever going to leave again. Because what they found when, they, when my backpack went through the conveyor belts, they opened up, and there were two guns in my backpack, two silver cap guns with little orange tips on them that I had bought at this Wild West theme park and I was so excited about. And here I am, just absolutely freaked because this is it and I'm never ever going home ever again. And so after all of the misunderstanding, they put those little guns in, uh, in the check-in luggage and I was able to go back home. Fast forward a year, uh, we'd, we, we feel the call to move here and my parents decide we're gonna move to Michigan because that, for some reason, sounds a lot like Maryland. And uh, we're, we go through the immigration process, and we're told, I'm at five years old, and they said, you're going to become what's called a resident alien. And so, much to my embarrassment, my mom loves to tell this story, I stood there and squinched my eyes and my fists waiting to turn green, because obviously that's what 
an alien looks like, and it never happened. But these early memories for me, very, very early formative memories, kind of stuck in my mind, in my heart, in my understanding of myself that I'm, this isn't quite home. This isn't quite where I belong. This isn't quite my native land. And I think it's actually given me a very unique perspective when we talk about holiness. We're going to be looking at first um, in the letter of 1 Peter. And Peter has a lot to say about holiness. Being one of Jesus' main disciples, he kind of becomes this pillar of the early church. And he speaks of holiness specifically by using this language of being resident aliens or being foreigners in a foreign land as this attitude that we're supposed to have of what our identity means in the way in which we plant ourselves in the culture around us. And so we're going to be looking at kind of three main things that I've come to about holiness and how it empowers us and gives us confidence to bold exploration. And we're going to begin with this. Holiness awakens us to our role in God's story. Holiness awakens us to our role in God's story. Turn with me, please. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in the 13th verse. And what we see so often in the letters of the New Testament is that the writer's First of all, tell the people the story of God and then begin to expound upon how that plays out practically in our lives. All of, the, all of the letters in the New Testament, this is fundamentally what these writers are doing. They're reminding their people of the story of God. They're allowing the story of God to interpret who we are and then talking about how that's practically lived out. And so that's what Peter's doing here. And he says this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And there Peter is quoting from Leviticus. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. And so Peter is using this dramatic, big-scale language in order to remind his people of what the story is that they have been caught up into. And it's important to recognize that he begins here by, by saying, you know, remember the time that you lived in ignorance. Remember the time that you lived as if you had no story. Remember the time in which you thought that it was up to you to determine your own story to determine who you are, determine what you get to and get not to do. And then perhaps this is a little bit controversial, especially um, on, on this weekend, but I believe our surrounding culture actively prevents us from understanding the holiness to which we have been called. And let me put a bit more of a point on it. I believe that the American dream actively prevents us from understanding what holiness truly means when we are saturated, immersed, and translated by the story of God. Because we grow up in a culture that talks about how we are self-made men and women. That it is by our own strength and our own merit and there is no limit and whatever we dream up, whatever it is that we want to be, we are allowed to do that. 
And so when we begin to talk about holiness, when we begin to talk about obedience, it feels confining to us because the other half of the message that we've received from our culture is freedom means I get to do whatever I want to do and I get to be whatever I want to be. So as soon as there are any kind of definition or confines placed upon me, I am therefore less free than I was before. And this is why so many of us have this uh, uncomfortable uh, relationship with the word holiness, because it feels to us like it's confining us, like it's making us smaller, like it's heaping all of these burdens on our backs that were never intended to be there. But that's a false understanding of what freedom really means when we judge freedom according to our rights to determine who we think that we are and that we get to, to import a story, we get to create our own story. I believe that holiness is about you and I waking up to the reality of the true story of God and allowing that story to interpret who we are. And I think by extension then, true freedom means I am now finally free to be who God has always determined me to be. And I think the scary thing there is that sometimes we don't trust that God's identity, God's definition of us is far more beautiful than anything that we can create with our own two hands. We feel like it's confinement. We feel like it's, it's not the beautiful story that we would have written for ourselves. But I think what Peter and Paul and all of these amazing writers of the New Testament are challenging us to is to say, can you see the beauty of the story of God? Can you allow that story to saturate you, to transform you, to define you, to call you holy and to call you into obedience? And can you trust that that story is far greater than anything that you can come up with on your own? And I think that this is really the challenge to you and I today. Do you immerse yourself in the story of God as often as it takes to allow it to interpret you, to allow it to challenge you? How often are you engaging with the story of God, letting it wash over you, letting it form you and shape you and challenge you and encourage you? Because ultimately, this is what I believe is the core of what church really is. I had a meeting with the elders on Monday, and we were talking about this, that church is this place where we come together on a Sunday, throughout the week, whatever it might be, and we tell one another the story of God in such a way as it interprets who we are. And we do that through engaging with the scripture. We do that through worship as we sing over one another, as we sing to our own souls. We do this through symbols, like tonight we're gonna to be participating in communion, the Holy Eucharist, this very strange symbol that Jesus himself gave to us, that as we practice it, we're telling ourselves the story over and over and over again until it forms us and changes us. And I think this is what doing church should be when we get together just as all of our ancestors before us have done. Whether it was meeting together in a cave in the middle of nowhere, holding little tiny pieces of parchment that had remnants of the scriptures, or it's meeting together in the grandest and most beautiful cathedrals that mankind has ever been able to create to the glory of God. What we do time and again is tell ourselves to tell one another the story of God and that we each have a role in it. And I think this is where often we go awry when we talk about holiness in the modern church. Holiness is less about behavior modification, which is based on this work contract idea, as it is about identity and vocation. 
when we reduce holiness, this idea that it's just about the do's and the don'ts and the behavior, what we're really saying is you've entered into an agreement with God in the same way that you have with your landlord, that you're going to mow the yard every week, and if something breaks, then he's going to come in and fix it. But there's no real relationship there. It's just a transaction. And so it's very easy to see why many of us think that holiness is about behavior modification, about getting you to change the way that you act so that you are more presentable. But what we find in the scriptures is it's, it's far deeper than that. It's about our identities being formed by encounter with God. It's about our vocations arising out of that understanding of who we're called to be that shapes and forms the way that we choose to be in the world. It's that covenant, that, that devotion, God's devotion to us and our devotion to him that begins to shape us into holy people. And I love that here Peter uses that language from Leviticus where Yahweh says, be holy as I am holy. And this isn't God saying, act the way that I act. It's not Jesus saying, behave the way that I behave. It's a far deeper thing. Know yourself in the way that I know you. And out of that is going to become the job that I have for you to do in this world as you are my hands and my feet, as you are my faithful presence in the places that desperately need to know my voice. And so the challenge for us to become holy as God is holy, as Jesus is holy, is for us to understand our vocation in the same way that Christ is. There's this other story in the Old Testament that I absolutely adore that I think comes to holiness from a really different angle. This, um, there's this story in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah has this, this uh, incredible vision of the throne room of God. And God's up on his throne, and there's lightning, and there's this sea like glass before them. And there are these four creatures that are kind of flying around the throne, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. And there's these wheels within wheels that are kind of hovering around underneath these creatures. And it's this just unbelievable sight. Ezekiel has a vision that's very similar. Uh, and there's another vision in Revelation. Someone was asking me recently, like, oh, I'd really love to know the stories behind all of your tattoos. Well, these are two tattoos that most of you probably won't get to see because they're right here, but of these creatures and these wheels within wheels. And they're this reminder of what holiness really looks like. And so Isaiah has this vision, and Isaiah's response at perceiving the holiness of God is to fall to his knees and to say, Whoa, am I. I am a man of unclean lips in a nation of unclean people. And you see, this is the place where many of us, when we interpret God by our standards, imagine God to come along and to point his finger in Isaiah's face and say, you're right, you're unholy, you're not worthy, you're messing this whole thing up, you need to get out of here. But that's not what we find in the story of Isaiah. He has this overwhelming sense of the holiness of God. He turns it back on himself and says, oh my, I'm the unworthy one, I'm the unclean one. And what does God do? One of the cherubim goes over to the throne and picks out this ember, and then he flies over and he anoints the lips of Isaiah, which is a symbol of he's being purified to be in the presence of God. And then God from his throne speaks up and he says, who will go on my behalf to deliver my message? And Isaiah immediately says, me, send me. Because after what I've just witnessed, that I have seen God face to face and yet I have lived, I'm in. And there's this beautiful interaction there. We see the encounter with the holiness of God, the human, uh, the human problem, the human struggle in the presence of God, God offering forgiveness and purification, and then the human being being sent out with this new understanding of identity 
And the identity that God gives us when we encounter his holiness, when we receive his forgiveness, is him looking at us and saying, you're worthy, not because of what you've done or not done, but because I have told you that that you are. And you're chosen. That I, I want you, I want to send you. I want to give you the message to go out into this world. And that becomes the vocation, that you have been sent, that you have been tasked. Isn't it a relief in some way to know that your life has purpose and meaning and direction? It's already been handed to you. The whole thing's there. None of us should be confused with what it is that we're called to do because it only fits into this larger thing of what God has been doing this whole time. I think the amazing thing about this image of God in theology, we call it the holy other. And it's this recognition that God is different than us. God is other than us. But sometimes we picture God so other that he can't be in our presence. And kind of at the other end of the spectrum is this idea that that God is so familiar um, that maybe he's just like a cute puppy that follows us around or something, but he's not really that powerful. But we get to live in this tension between what we call God's imminence, his presence to us, and his transcendence, that he is so different and other than us. And this is the amazing thing that we see in Jesus is the best representation of what God is really like. And that Jesus was fully imminent, he was present to us, but he was also fully holy. He was other, he was transcendent. But it's his choice to be with us that determines our worthiness. You see, even here, Peter talks about, you know, remembering, um, do-do-do, where is it? Okay, he says, you know, remember that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, and, and, you know, I've talked about this many times before. We were delivered from our, the, the traditions of our ancestors where gods were just like us times a thousand. You know, you and I, we have a bad day. When a god has a bad day, he blows up the side of a mountain and, you know, all this lava spews out and, like, destroys an entire city. Or, you know, you and I, we might struggle with lust, but a god, you know, he sees a woman that he wants and he takes her and it's just like there's just death and destruction everywhere. You know, the gods are like us, they're just times a thousand, they just have way more powers, but essentially they have the same struggles that you and I do. But, but Yahweh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, as the holy other, the transcendent God who chooses to be imminent to us, gives us this whole different understanding because I believe it's God's holiness, his separateness from all of the mess that actually gives him the authority to determine who you are, to determine what you're called to do. He has the best vantage point to be able to do that. And the invitation is for all of us to trust him in that. So my second point about holiness, holiness gives us confidence to explore our God-given identity. Holiness gives us confidence. So another airport story. In November of 2012, I took a mission team to, uh, not to Peru, to Poland um, and we were working with kind of the local hardcore community in a couple cities there, and we put on this conference, and it was really great. And we're coming back to the United States, and we actually fly through Detroit this time. And so what happens is with, like, every time I leave the country as I'm there with my group or my friends or my family, whoever it is, and everybody gets to go into the citizens' row, and I get herded with the other cattle that don't actually belong into this other line. And now this is a post-9-11 story. So... All the TSA has been established. Immigration is a very different story. And so I'm in, I'm in Detroit. I walk up to the booth. I hand over my passport and my green card. And this just, just big-looking dude in all black, and he's probably got a gun somewhere on him. He leans over, and he says, who sponsored you into this country? 
I said, I was five. And he looked at me again, he said, who sponsored you into this country? I said, my, my parents? And then he leaned way over and he said, that's the wrong answer. Now, I don't know what to do in this moment. You know, I have become quite comfortable in living here, and I like it. And apparently, I'm not going to get past Detroit, which, if you know anything about the United States, is not the most choice of places to be stuck. I lived outside of Detroit for several years. Michigan is amazing. So I just racked my brain for a moment. Okay, who sponsored me into this country when I was five years old that was not my parents? And I said, uh, the Episcopal Diocese of Michigan, which are the people that hired my dad, and he said, that's the right answer. And then he handed me back my passport and my green card, and I tucked them away, and I very, very reluctantly walked away from him and was thankful that I was now in, back in country. And it reminded me of two things in that moment. Number one, I probably really need to look into this whole citizenship thing so that doesn't keep happening. But number two, it reminded me that we live in a modern culture guided by fear and paranoia as a result of what happened on September 11th. And some of you that are a little bit older can quite clearly remember the, the extreme difference there was in the, in the emotional, mental, and spiritual temperature of our country before that day. And that we're so guided by fear and paranoia Always looking because there's a devil in every bush. There might be someone out to get us at every moment. And it reminded me in that moment, too, that if I am truly holy, I am not called to live in that same sense of fear and paranoia that has so much become the status quo in our country. And so one of the things that we even wanted to do tonight as a symbol, you know, you've got your journal there. I hope you're taking some notes. Um, but we actually designed this little passport stamp that we want to offer you that's this recognition that you've been declared holy and that gives you permission to go wherever in the world that you desire to go. So I'm going to invite Valley um, to, to walk around and to stamp those for you as we continue on. But it's this recognition that we have been declared holy, that we don't have to conform to the status quo around us. And I think this is what's so fascinating about the way that Peter and others in the New Testament talk about this, that our holy lives are a response to the proclamation of holiness over us. Holy lives are this proclamation of holiness. You know, the, we, that holiness is this declaration. You are holy. You have been chosen into Christ. You have been purified by God. But it comes with this challenge to live into that holy lives. So you see this in the language of Peter himself, where he's telling his people, you are holy. Now begin to live holy lives. Begin to live lives that reflect that declaration that God has over your own life. And you see, holiness does not mean uh, permissiveness. Again, that we can fall into that lie of, I can do whatever I want. It's okay, I've been declared holy in God's sight. But it also doesn't mean that holiness is something that we have to muster up within ourselves. Again, when we live out of that works contract, we think as soon as I've messed up, now I'm unholy. I've, I've, I've missed the mark. I have to start all over again and I have to kind of re-earn my holiness by performing and doing it right and making sure that I've got the list of do's and don'ts down. But that's not what this is when we're talking about covenant with God. It's that we have been declared holy and the challenge for us as followers of Christ, as his disciples, is to learn to allow that to determine how we act, how we choose to live as we seek to live holy lives. 
One of my absolute favorite books of all time, top 10 books, is called Resident Aliens by Stanley Hauerwas. And he says this in the book, we want to claim the church's oddness as essential to its faithfulness. And I absolutely love this phrasing that Hauerwas uses the language of oddness to speak about what it means for us to be holy and how essential that holiness is to our faithfulness. You know, for the past several years, one of the things that we've been struggling in, in, in with, a, with an evangelical and post-evangelical church and seeing the state of the church in, in America today is the, 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 the failure of the seeker-friendly movement. And this was essentially us saying, we need to find new ways of saying old things, and we need to find new ways of doing old things in order to make the message more palatable for the people in the culture around us. We need to make everything more approachable. And in some regards, there's a really good aspect there. There's something really beautiful. But what often happens in that is, as we're trying to say new things, our old things in new ways, we start to say new things in new ways. And then the church is so watered down that it just becomes one more self-help option on the smorgasbord of self-help options. And then people begin to walk away because it doesn't really seem like it's working. And the problem with the seeker-friendly church attitude is that as a church, we're seeking to conform to the culture around us. You know, I was on, uh, on tour with a friend of mine years ago, and, and he was on stage, and he just got to this moment, we're at this festival, and he says, you know what, guys? Jesus is not cool. And it just, like, got quiet. And he goes, and Jesus is definitely not relevant. And everybody looks down at the magazine that they're holding in their hands at the moment. <laughs> he goes, he's better than that. And that's where we've fallen short because we take who Jesus is, we take what the church is, and then we look at culture around us and we say, how do, how do we make this thing fit into that thing? How do we let them determine who we're supposed to be? And we give over ground that has been made ours for a long, long time. But you see, when you and I as the church, as the people of God, embrace our oddness, we embrace our strangeness. We embrace our holiness. When we choose to live out of the story to which we have been saved, regardless of what the culture around us decides is popular or not, that's when we begin to find that we're living into our divine vocation. Jesus puts it so beautifully in John 17 as he's praying for us, and this is him speaking to the Father. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. I think a lot of times we fall into that temptation, don't we? We perceive holiness as we have to be separated from the world. We need to hide ourselves in our little Christian bunkers and just kind of let the world pass us by. And hopefully maybe God will intervene at some point and just flat out rescue us and take us away from this place. But that's not what Jesus prays. He says that you not take them out of the world, but that you will protect them from the evil one. They're not of this world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And even here, Jesus reflects that same thing that Peter says, that, that Paul says, you have been declared holy, now seek to live holy lives. And that's what the process of sanctification is. 
Is God, the Spirit, working in us to transform us so that the outside actions begin to reflect the inside reality? And Jesus gives us this perfect tension between this this desire to escape from the messiness of the world and also just seeking to conform to the world. When he says, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. Because holy people, we've changed our citizenship, yet we're still here. We've changed our center of gravity. We've changed our language. We've changed our customs to recognize that we are now in a new country, in a new world that sits over top of this current one, that it's so woven together that our task as the church is to make them um, completely reconcilable. And so I think the really interesting question for all of us is what is the outworking of the declaration that you are holy in your life right now? What does that look like practically? What does that mean in your relationships to choose to be holy as God is holy? What does that mean in the kind of career that you will say yes to and the kind of career that you will say no to because you have been declared holy? What does that mean when it comes to joy, when it comes to play, when it comes to celebration? Have those things been immersed in the story of God? Have they been sanctified so that it becomes the natural outworking of the fact that we are declared holy? These are the hard yet imperative questions of holiness. And this is often where we set up legalism as the straw man in the name of freedom in Christ. That as soon as there's some sort of expectation for the way we are to act as Christians in the world, that we start to claim that people are leading us into legalism. But I think there's something far deeper there, that as we live according to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we begin to ask him to anoint us, to guide us into how we choose to be in the world, in our relationships, in our work life, in our family life, whatever it might be. And that brings me to my third and final point. Holiness gives us boldness to press into the world, revealing the face of God. It almost goes without saying that Jesus so deeply understood what his holiness meant for him. Not only in his identity as the son of God, but in his vocation, in being the Messiah, in being the king, in being the savior of the world. I want to show you just You know, every story in the Gospels is dripping with the holiness of Jesus. But this is one that I'm so often drawn to in Matthew chapter 9. And the word holy doesn't fit into it at all, but I I hope that you'll see the evidence of true holiness in this, in this clash of understanding that we have. So as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes one of the prophets, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I was watching an interview um, with Steve Carell yesterday, and he was talking about when he was in this sketch show called The Dana Carvey Show in the 90s, and they had this ongoing sketch that he would try to do that was a podiatrist that gagged every time he had to touch somebody's feet. It was hilarious. He's just like, well, Mr. Jenkins, it just looks like we... I thought it was really funny. But can you imagine, can you imagine a doctor who's afraid to be around sick people? 
Or even think about in your own career. You know, some of you work in, in the medical field and others like, you know, some of you are wedding photographers. Imagine if you just couldn't stand brides and you didn't want to be around them. Like, what is that? And this is what Jesus is saying. Like, it's, it's, that it's the sick that need the doctor and so I'm going to be with them. Because you see, the Pharisees have this misaligned understanding of what holiness means. They know that they're holy. But they think their holiness means we have to remove ourselves from the brokenness and the pain of the world around us. Because if we were to step in, if we were to interact with tax collectors and pagans and sinners, their unholiness cooties are going to get all over us and compromise us. And so when they're asking Jesus, what are you doing with them? They're saying, don't you know that you're holy? You're, you're better than them. You're not supposed to hang out with them. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's the declaration of holiness in my life that actually gives me permission to be right up in the mix of the lives of these people and to know that they cannot compromise my holiness and that I can choose to be here to reveal God to them and bring healing and restoration. I think our fear of interacting with the messiness in the lives of other people actually betrays that sometimes we are the Pharisees that we don't want to get involved, that we don't want to get elbow deep in other people's problems because we're afraid that we're going to be compromised. And it's better if we practice our holiness just in the safety of other people that are just like us and will hide within the walls of the church. But if we cherish the declaration that we are holy and the challenge to figure out what that means in our day-to-day -day life, then it gives us permission, just like Jesus, to be right up in the mix of the brokenness and the messiness of the world around us, and it gives us confidence to be a shining light in that place. We can be confident wherever we go because we know who we are and we know what we're called to do there. I think Christians should be at the forefront of innovation, not falling behind the rest of the world. Perhaps it is the way that we have held our holiness, that we don't want to be in the world, nor do we particularly want to be of it, that we've actually allowed so much of the world to move on without us, and that fear has kept us back from engaging. And I think we all need to own that. We don't get to divorce ourselves from other parts of the church just because we don't like what she does. But we do come into a space of confession and repentance and seek to make amends. But I believe that when we own our holiness as little Christs, as Christians, we begin to produce God-shaped solutions for human-shaped problems. And this is true in all of the spheres of culture around us, in the arts, in politics, and I still have not figured out what that one's supposed to look like, so if you have any ideas, please meet me after. What does holiness mean in the way in which we engage with economic systems? when we examine social issues in the world around us? What would it mean for international relations for us to be a holy people of God right up there in the mix? What does it mean for us to be in medicine, to be the holy people of God at the forefront of healing and hope? What does it mean in education to choose to see the value of every child and to raise them up into their true identities? And I'm not saying that as Christians we are to, to be involved in the culture around us in some sort of domineering attitude, like we've got all the answers and they don't, but that we choose to step into it with those same compassionate hearts that we see revealed in Jesus, that he was profoundly affected by the world around him, and that's what drew him into the mix.
we also do it with a sense of humility, of open-handedness, being willing to, to allow God to give us that divine imagination that we need in order to come up with God-shaped solutions to human problems. I, I heard an interview this week um, with a, a woman who's a climatologist, and she was talking about her work around uh, climate change and how much work that she's put into that. She goes around teaching and educating specifically within Christian circles because I think it's one place that we have really fallen short of our vocation of what God has called us to do. That when we read in the beginning of Genesis and God says to take care of the animals and the plants and the earth, maybe he actually meant that. And what she, one of the things that she, she gave all these incredible statistics that just broke my heart, but she said, in one year, and currently we expect a minimum extinction rate of 200 species of animals and a maximum extinction rate of 100,000 animal species annually. In the next 50 years, we're expected to lose another 50% of the animals on this planet, many species that we will never know the names of. And here's a woman motivated as an act of worship and a love for creation to choose to find God-shaped solutions to human-shaped problems. What does it look like for Christians to be involved in our penal system, in our prison system, and to go, this is broken, this isn't the way that it's supposed to work. Because as Christians, we don't believe in retribution, we believe in restoration. We believe in hope, we believe in transformation. We believe that society can actually become better in the way that we treat those on the outside. And it becomes a little less retributive and racist and it becomes a little bit more inclusive and hope-filled. And through that, we reveal the truth of the gospel tangibly to people that desperately need to hear it. What does it look like for us as Christians to be involved in the arts and to not let our music and our painting and our plays and our dances to be reduced to just propaganda for some little flyer of us trying to convince people to come and join our club? But our art actually becomes this prophetic declaration of seeing the world honestly for the, how it is today, but also providing a God-shaped vision for what it could be and eventually will be. That's the challenge before you and I. In whatever your discipline is, whatever your skills are, your passions, to allow the fact that you have been declared holy to shape the way that you choose to be in that space, to shape the way that you choose to reveal God in some very unique and tangible ways. The church's new exile could become a new reformation if we stay true to our calling. You have been freed from the status quo. You have been freed from having to go along with whatever culture says you are to be and whatever culture says you are to do and you have been rescued in to an even better story. And you get to live out of that story every day. And it's that story that's going to enable you to envision a new world as God determines it. But when it comes to your individual calling, you need to start with a big picture of what it is that God has, is doing right now. What it is that he has been doing for thousands of years. And then to begin to ask him to find your place in that, your niche in contributing to what he's doing because you're not alone. You don't have to make it all up. You don't have to create that thing because he's created you for it. So I wanna invite you to stand with me, please. As I said, I think church is the place where we all come back together, we worship God, we're formed by truth 
and we're commissioned to go back out. And it's imperative that you and I come back here every week. It's imperative that we meet during the week to talk, to remind ourselves of the odd, strange, beautiful story to which we have been saved. And that story that we find one another in. So now we're going to participate in another one of these odd symbols that make us who we are. I'm going to invite um, those who have been asked to serve communion to go back um, to the respective pillars. But I believe, you know, when Jesus gave us this symbol of the Holy Eucharist, of communion, of the Lord's table, it isn't just something that we do in remembrance. It isn't something that just sits alongside of every other meal that you've had today. But it's something sacred and different and holy. And this is you going beyond words, going beyond intellectual affirmation, and actually participating in this symbol that when you take into your, into your mouth the, the bread and the juice as the body and the blood of Christ, you're recognizing, again, you're reenacting the story to which you've been rescued. One of my favorite movies, uh, Gandhi, that came out in, I think it was 1984, there's this priest that went and joined Gandhi in, in what he was doing in India, and he's up on top of this train, and this Indian man turns next to him and goes, oh, you're a Christian, right? And he says, yeah, and he says, you drink blood. And he said, what? He said, you know, blood of Christ. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess we do. And the rest of the world sees that as very strange, and it is. But I believe it's that kind of strangeness, that kind of oddness that's going to save us. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to come to the table together. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you that you have declared us holy, even when we don't feel like it, especially when we don't feel it. Lord, we repent of the times that we've reduced holiness just to some sort of uh, legalistic mumbo-jumbo, or we believe that it's just about us behaving right, and maybe you'll pay attention to us. Father, teach us how to recognize our holiness as your value of us but also that you've given us a challenge from our holiness to live holy lives, to live lives that reflect and reveal your truth to the world. Lives that enable us, that holy declaration enables us to get right up into the brokenness and the mess of the world around us in confidence because we know what it is that we call. And so Lord, as we come to your table, I pray you continue to sanctify us. That Lord, as we take this bread and this juice into our bodies, that it becomes for us the transformative body and blood of Jesus, broken open for us, sent here to rescue us, to save us, to give us a new identity, and to draw us into your story. And Father, as we worship you, we give your Holy Spirit permission to move in us and through us to bring healing, to bring hope, to bring new and fresh vision of the calling that you've placed on each of our lives. We pray all of these things in the strong and the blessed and the holy name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to the table together.